It is August 10th. It's 2016. Tonight's message is called, I Want to Win. Why don't you say that with me? I want to win. Now, the subtitle is Proper Discipleship and Powerful Dependency because that is how we win. So I want to win, and the Bible gives us a roadmap on how to win. Do you want to win? I want to hear it. Say it. I don't believe you. I want to hear it from the back row. It's up to us. We can. Because the Bible tells us how to do it. Turn with me to Matthew 28. We're going to be in verse 19. Say there when you were there. In case you haven't noticed about being at Life Changing Ministries, it will not be possible to coast through this service. The mission statement of my family's life is to excite people about the kingdom of God, to bring them into a dramatic confrontation with the reality of the kingdom. That extends to every person that was brave enough to come through those doors tonight. So I will use every means available to keep your attention, to demand your attention, to require you to give all of your attention to the Lord. Do you want that? If not, you better run now. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. How many nations? The very first thing we are to make in the kingdom is disciples. Not believers, not Christians, not adherents, disciples. The beginning of the path to victory is discipleship. Baptizing them. Another way to say that would be immersing them, dipping them, saturating them into the name The name here is the character, the authority, the body of work into the name of the Father, into the name of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We begin in discipleship training people what it is to be immersed in the Father, immersed in the Son, immersed in the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on in verse 20 and teaching them to obey. Say obey. Obey Obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Discipleship is the beginning of the path to victory. Tonight we are going to go through so many scriptures that you are going to have a hard time writing them down. Many of them I'm going to quote and not even turn to. But you own Bibles and you can write them down. Mark 12, 24 is one we are going to pause on for a second though. Jesus Christ looked right into the eyes of religious leadership. And I'm speaking of Sadducees who were born in a temple aristocracy and they would die in a temple aristocracy. A few verses after this, he's speaking to Pharisees, not Sadducees. And these men had the 39 books of the Tanakh memorized. And Jesus still says these things. Are you not in error because you do not know the scripture or the power of God? The number one reason for failure is that people either don't know the Scripture, and by know, I mean that Hebrew concept of experience. They don't have experiential knowledge of the Scripture, or they don't have experiential knowledge of the power of God. And friends, it takes absolute both. Tonight we're going to talk about dependency upon the power of God and discipleship as a path to success. Are you ready for me to get your attention? You ready for the most controversial thing you've heard in a while? John 14, 12, 
it says, doesn't insinuate, just comes right out and says, you're going to do greater things than Jesus did. It says that. And yet, how many of you want to stand up and testify as to what you have done in your life that is greater than Jesus? Wow, I didn't get one taker on that. How about this one? 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 8. It says that if the covenant that brought death was glorious, how much more glorious is the covenant that brings life? That, that's what this passage teaches. So how many of you believe the new covenant is more glorious than the old? Wow. You know, we've heard that so many times. I want to examine that. Is that all right? Yeah. I want to take a hard look and see. Now, I'm going to grant to you that if 2 Corinthians 3, 7, and 8 says that it is more glorious, then it is. But I'm going to ask you if you're seeing more glory. I'm going to ask you if the miracles that we're about to read about you have begun to touch. Let us look at Jesus turning water into wine. Now's where you're going to get your pen working because we're not going to turn to every one of these. In John 2, there's a slide on this. In John 2, Jesus turns water into wine. Somebody say that's pretty good. But in Exodus 7, Moses turns the Nile into blood. Which one's more glorious? A few jars of water turned into wine or an entire river into blood? Which one do you think would catch the world's attention? Well, how about this? In Mark, Matthew 14, we have food multiplied, right? Loaves and fishes multiplied. But in Exodus 16, we have 3 million people receive food every day for 40 years and on the sixth day get a double portion. Which one is greater? See, when we look at the New Testament, we go, oh, it's glory, Lord, it's glory. The Old Testament has got greater miracles. There's no way around that. How is it that we can be given more and do less? How about this one? John 21, there is a miraculous catch of fish. Pastor Mays talked about this on Sunday. 153 fish, how cool is that? How does that compare to Exodus 17? Exodus 17, there was enough water provided. Listen to this. Enough water provided in Exodus 17 every day for the entire state of Arkansas. Arkansas doesn't move you. The entire state of Mississippi, that doesn't get you. The entire state of Utah, that doesn't get you. Entire state of Iowa. All right, how about Kansas. Nobody's impressed yet? The entire state of Kansas could have been given water for what Israel got in a single day. And how did it happen? In Exodus 17, Moses struck a rock. Which one's greater? Is it greater to catch 153 fish or is it greater to give the state of Utah water every day for 40 years? Psalm 78, 15, it, it, it comes right out and says, there was so much water that it was as deep as the seas. There were oceans of water provided in that miracle. Well, how about this one? When you look at Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, is that scary? Two people struck dead because they lied to the Holy Ghost. Compare that to number 16, where the earth swallowed Korah and his followers alive. Which one is a greater miracle? How about Luke 4? In Jesus' hometown, they march him to the edge of a cliff, hoping to throw him off and kill him. 
and he walks through the crowd. They weren't able to harm him. Well, in Joshua 10, the stellar realm stopped moving. The sun, the moon, and the stars stood still, which is a greater miracle. In Luke 7, Jesus raises the widow of Nain's son from the dead. Men are raised from the dead in the New Testament. Somebody say amen. Amen. In 2 Kings 13, Elijah's dead bones brought somebody back to life. Which one is greater? In John 11, a man named Caiaphas speaks, even though he's wicked, for the Lord. A kind of miracle of source. He prophesies that it's better for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. Of course, in Numbers 22, another Equus Africanus Asininus spoke. It was Balaam's donkey who spoke for God. So let me ask you, which was the bigger miracle? The two-legged or the four-legged version? You don't like that one. So that we get seven in case you reject any one of them. I'm going to give you eight. In the Newer Testament, the blood of the lamb saves individuals. But in the Older Testament, in Exodus 12, the blood of the lamb saved the entire nation. Now you theologians out there could say, come on, pastor. In Romans 11:26, the whole nation's going to be saved in a single day. Amen. We're going to greater miracles. But... Are we there yet? If they saw these kind of things, let me ask you, when I said, are we there yet? Why did two people on the front row answer that question? Is that because in the back corner, y'all are there yet? It's just these poor folks down front? Are we there yet? If we're not there yet, but it's where Jesus said we got to go, then what do we got to do to get there? See, Sometimes we have a way of comparing the Older and the Newer Testament with us so favorable. If you were looking for a miracle worker, which resume would you take? Would you take the Nile to blood, the manna, the water as deep as the seas, the sun standing still, the the starry realm just obeying a man, Elijah's bones bringing back somebody? What would you take? Which brings us to our point. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24, please turn there. We find out something. How many of you know that in the original letters, they did not break it up into chapters? Anybody write an email and say, chapter 1, chapter 2, don't write me if you write like that. I already get emails from people that I couldn't pick out of a lineup anywhere in the world. They're convinced that my sermons are about them and I don't know them. To them, I say, if the shoe fits, swallow it. The rest, we're speaking to the people who are in this room. But when you write a letter, you don't tend to write chapter and verse, do you? The chapters and the verses are there to help you have reference points. They're not there to divide the Scripture. In fact, I believe the Scripture can't be segmented at all successfully. So let's not divorce Corinthians 9 from 10 as you go through these processes. In Corinthians 9, 24, do you not know that in a race, all runners run? What do runners do? But only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get that prize. I want to win. Now look at chapter 10. 
in verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant, or where I'm from, ignorant. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. Pastor Hutchinson preached last Wednesday, all means all. All of them saw the cloud. All of them went through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses, the cloud, and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, somebody say nevertheless. God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do you mean that those that had the greater miracles, most didn't make it? Well, what does most mean? Is that 51% didn't make it? How, How do we do that? It turns out that the generation that saw the miracles of the Exodus... Some three million people conservatively. Yo, that's, that's the city of Houston. Three million people. Two people pleased God and went into the promised land. Anybody want to do those? Eh, rather than do the statistic because it is long. It's in the millionths of, of a whole. Why don't we just consider that if we were looking at the United States... Israel is not the United States at this time, but proportionally, if we were looking at the United States, then no more people than the number of people in this room would be pleasing to the Lord out of all of the United States. Is that shocking? Come on, I got to have your attention now. How could I not have your attention now? Do you want to win? I want to win. And if we find out that only 200 people out of the United States were winning... How seriously would you take a hard look at your situation? I'd like you to think about some of these that he says are examples. Are you ready? How about Shlomo, Solomon? Could we put Proverbs 30, 32 on the screen? He wrote this beautiful proverb. If you have played the fool and exalted yourself, or if you have planned evil, clap your hand over your mouth. Sometimes we know the right things to say. But how did Solomon end his life? Did he exalt himself? So the very man that wrote, don't exalt yourself and play the fool, became the very fool that he was writing about. How does that happen? Shouldn't that be scary to you? Well, how about this one? When you consider Saul, 1 Samuel 10, 11 says, Saul was changed into a different person. Is that when all those who had formerly saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, what is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? The passage goes on to describe a kind of born-again experience in his life. But how does Saul finish his life? Well, what happened to him, saints? How does something like that happen? How do you be the wisest man in the world like Solomon and end up playing the fool? How do you become the anointed king of Israel prophesying by the Spirit of God, changed into a different person, and end up committing suicide? Doesn't stop there. In Numbers 24, 16, a prophet named Balaam, 
he declares that he is one who sees visions from the Almighty. His eyes are open. He's the one who sees. And unless you think badly of Balaam at this point, Balaam is the first guy in the Bible to prophesy that the Mashiach would be a Malak, that the Messiah would in fact be a king. The very first person in all the Bible to prophesy that. And he said, I see a star rising out of Jacob. So his eyes did see. And he was one who heard the oracles of God. So what happened to Balaam? Because he finishes as an enemy of God, an enemy of Israel that was known for sexual immorality and defined a way of rebellion to the Lord. So what happened to him? Those guys were examples. Now, what an interesting thing. Peter said, we now have the promises of God made more certain. Why more certain? Because in Peter's day, he was seeing the fulfillment of some. Now we live past Peter's day and we get to see the fulfillment of things that were said before Peter and in Peter's life. So let me ask, does the New Testament have examples of these anointed men that did not win? Well, Colossians 4.14, let's read it together. Say there when you're there. How about the Treaster family? Y'all there? Come on, Ella. Call it out, Ella. I'm not even ashamed to pick on women tonight. Yet will I become more undignified than this. This is a message that will save our lives. We're going to have to get it. I'm not going to rest until we all do. In Colossians 4.14, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and what's that word? Demas. Demas, send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers of Laodicea and to Nympha and the church at her house. We see that Demas is a dear brother. How about this passage in Philemon 24? Philemon's only got one chapter, so when you quote Philemon, you can just quote the verse. Philemon, or Philemon, if you prefer, 24. Say there when you were there. Everybody there? Hallelujah. Philemon. And so do Mark and Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. If you read the 23rd verse, we're talking about sending greetings. And Mark, Aristarchus, and Demas are all um, lumped together. What does that tell you? They were co-workers. They were sharers in an apostolic ministry. And yet by the time Paul is writing his letter to Timothy, we see in 2 Timothy 4.10 something entirely different about Demas. And we have to ask ourselves, how does this happen? In 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Well, what has happened? In verse 10, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas deserted the apostolic work. He left Luke behind. He left Paul behind. He left all of those workers behind. How does something like that happen? 
Do you know in the letters 1st and 2nd Timothy, we have a guy named Phlygeus, another named Hermonides, another named Hymenius, and another named Philitus. All of them in some way shipwrecked their faith. And all of them were co-workers in some way. Five men in two letters. Is it an Old Testament problem or an Old and New Testament problem? So those who saw greater miracles had it happen, and those who walked with the apostles had it happen. Well, we're probably immune to it, huh? When you look at some of the things that a statistician named Barna has written, or if you're reading John Maxwell, I want to share with you a couple things that that these guys have put together. This is going to kill you. It killed me today. It brought Pastor Wade to tears today. This is tough stuff. Are you ready? Can you take it? Do you want to win? Do you want to win? Then we need to look at how not to lose as well. In this country, I'm speaking of American Christianity, that which broadcasts itself all over the world is the standard with purple hair and gold thrones. 1,500 pastors leave the ministry every single month. Friends, that's 18,000 a year. Say it with me, 18,000? 18,000 a year. That's incredible. How about this one? There are 7,000 churches that close every year in this country. 7,000. You know how many churches begin every year? About 4,000. Can, can we say there's an attrition happening here? How, how about this one? This, this is sickening. The pastoral divorce rate in this country is 50%. Pastors are just as likely to divorce their spouses as the common public. 40% of pastors in a blind survey that Barna conducted have had an affair while in the ministry. Let this sink in for a minute. 70% do not have a best friend in their own church. 70%, 7 out of 10. 80% describe themselves as discouraged. When their wives are polled, even higher numbers for the wives. 50% report that they would leave ministry if they knew another way to make the same living. 80%, 80, 8 out of 10, 80% spend less than 15 minutes of prayer in a day. 80%, but they speak well, they raise money well, 95% have no regular daily prayer time with their spouse. You wonder why they're getting divorces? Maybe the most difficult one to wrap my mind around is out of every 10 men that have a congregation today, say out of every 10, only one will make it to his 60s still in ministry. Out of every 10 men, how many of you want to go into ministry? Well, if this is what we were looking at, I don't know if I would want to. But this is not what the Bible describes. This is not the way to do it. This is what happens when we substitute academics for discipleship. This is what happens when we substitute theology and doctrine for dependency on the power of the Holy Ghost. Please don't think that this is 
not a problem in spirit-filled churches. Do you really think that the traveling companions of Paul were not spirit-filled? Do you really think that those Old Testament saints were not real saints? There is a major question as to why is this occurring. Well, the standard answers tend to be John 10.10 says the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So it's the devil. The devil's doing it. Sometimes you might get a more nuanced answer out of Matthew 24.7 where you might hear something like nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. See, there's a clash. Oh, well, you know, that's, that's it. It's just uh, victims of warfare. But I think that there might be more to it than just that. You know, in 2 Corinthians 2.11, I'm paraphrasing, Paul said, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Do you think that there may be satanic schemes to destroy the church of the living God, to destroy its ministers, and to mislead its congregations? I don't want to be outwitted. I want to win. Do you want to win? In Ephesians 6.11, he tells us to take our stand against the devil's schemes. How can you take your stand if you don't know what the problem is? Nothing worse than treating symptoms without knowing the root cause. Like a dog chasing its tail. You know, if I say the name Billy Bob Harold Jr., probably nobody in here goes, Oh, I know who that is. I want to put a picture on the screen. This is Billy Bob Harold Jr. He's a native of Kingwood, Texas. And I'm not picking on Billy Bob. His life is serving as an example to us tonight. Because Billy Bob won with that lottery ticket $31 million. Oh, man. What kind of problems would be solved in your life, Daniel, if you had $31 million? Oh, Nolan, if only you had... You could send that TV preacher the jet he's always wanted. What would you do with $31 million? He won it in 1997. And he did what all of you just said in your hearts you would do. He went to church. He did good things. He even gave a chunk of it to his church. Of course, within 20 months, he was bankrupt. 20 months to go through $31 million. Not just bankrupt, divorced. Not just divorced, he took a shotgun to himself and ended his own life. What is to be learned from this? See, discipleship teaches character. Discipleship is to teach you how to steward the very great call of God that is on your life. The power of the Spirit was supposed to teach us dependency upon the Lord, not independency from Him. Being given healing power, musical anointing, preaching anointing, doesn't mean that we have the character to steward or maintain such things. When you give somebody their inheritance all at once, Proverbs says in the end it will not be a blessing. So let us walk through a couple just for fun. 
In Mark 10, 27, all things are possible. Say all things. All things things are possible. With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible. What happens when you find out everything is possible? All the power in the universe is at your disposal. How about John 14, 26? When you find out, the Spirit will teach you all things. How many things? All. All. Or 1 Corinthians 3, 21, when Paul simply says, all things are yours. Isn't that a little bit like hitting the lottery? You know, this is such a common problem that you can Google lottery winners and people have made charts that equate the amount of money that they won and how long it took them to go bankrupt. Most of the time, drugs are involved. People don't know how to handle the enormity of what they were given so easily. We have a few financial planners in the room. When a man has to save for his entire life, that lifetime of discipline or discipleship in saving gives him the character to handle the amount that grows. You're supposed to grow with the anointing. But a man with an anointing is not necessarily a mature man. I could preach at 18 years old. I could prophesy at 18 years old. That didn't mean that I was mature. This is why the Bible says not to exalt the novice. Jesus Christ himself said that the process begins like this. Go and make disciples. The cure for our problem, the one question Barna doesn't ask because we're that far gone that he doesn't know to ask, is who discipled you and how long did it take? Jesus Christ, can we agree He's the master discipler? It took Him three and a half years. Well, it must be because they were just part-time at it, right? No, they left everything that they had. They left their father's nets. They left their businesses. They left everything. And they followed Jesus and were with Him 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three and a half years to be discipled. So when he told them, go make disciples, what do you think they had in mind that looked like? Oh, I know. Showing up 15 minutes early to Sunday school and getting your hand out. Probably not, huh? And to those disciples that he said, go into all the world and make disciples, he also told them, do not go anywhere till you've been clothed with power from on high because all of that discipleship all of that knowledge all of that first hand experience did not change the fact that they needed to be utterly dependent upon the Holy Ghost what happens though preachers like some of the guys from the 50's I don't mean to pick on them the ones that we mention as examples, cautionary tales, most of them did so much more than anybody in this room, including me, that how dare we criticize them. And yet a guy like A.A. Allen is healing people visibly on a stage, bones popping back in place, people walking, just like they did on our Mexico missions trip. Started with a little drink in the evenings. Not something I particularly have a problem with, but in his life, he apparently became a problem. 
Because before long, he was walking out on the stage drunk. You know what he could still do drunk? Heal people. Don't be foolish. Just because somebody can sing and it's anointed does not mean that they have good character. It does not mean they've been discipled. I can look at the music videos that are coming out for Christian worship right now with our girls singing beautiful about Jesus in tank tops in a way that just embarrasses me. If it was my daughter, I would clothe her and spank her and tell you something's wrong. We have to return to sound principles of discipleship. Sound principles of dependency upon the Holy Ghost. And every once in a while, the more the Lord has done through you, the less you think you need the Lord. We don't mean to do it, but let me ask you, do you pray more when you're broke or when you're flush? Do you pray more when you're in jail or when you're sitting in your living room? Do you pray more when you're on the mission field or when you're sitting at home watching football? See, something happens that the more the Lord does for you, the less you feel like you need the Lord. So winning the lottery and being anointed of God have some similarities. You didn't do anything. Our friend earlier, Billy Bob, he went from broke to millionaire and he didn't do anything to do it. He's just a regular guy. I'm not mad at him. I feel sorry for him. He's a cautionary tale. It may be that his family hears this message and I pray to God they listen to the cautionary tale. What did you do to receive what God has given you? See, it's not as if you earned it. It's, it's certainly not as if you matured into it. He lavishes upon you His goodness. And because He just gives it and gives it and gives it, for most of us, it becomes enough rope to hang ourselves. Now, how can I say most of us? Well, you heard the statistics. You heard them. Three million people in two make it in. Now, this is difficult. And it's not been my intention to be ugly, not my intention to point out your particular flaws. If you're wondering, I am preaching to you, each one of you. I'm equally concerned about you. And if you come up after this message and say, Pastor, was that about me? Unequivocally, 100%, I will tell every one of you, looking you in the eye, yes, it was about you. It's about all of us, actually. I've been doing this for over two decades now. I've been fortunate that I was discipled well. I'm fortunate I've been surrounded by godly men. I was recently written to and they said I was unhinged. They have no idea. <laughs> I love when we stir up the demonic realm. The same little puppets always get their strings pulled. Happens to me all over the world. Let's me know that I'm engaged in a spiritual warfare. Thus far... We have described problems. Any lost person can do that. The news does it every night. Sometimes they even give you propaganda. I want to do something different tonight. I want to move on to solutions. 
Do you want to describe problems or would you like to hear solutions? solutions? If you haven't been taking notes up to this point, this would be something you would want to write down. Because I want to win. Do you want to win? Yes. Cody Smith, do you want to win? Yes. Look, Cody wants to get married. You know, that wife will need him to win. Listen to me, ladies. Don't, don't marry a man that doesn't win. Don't do it. If he's losing before you get married, all he's going to do is pull you down. We need those who have been discipled, those who are dependent upon the Spirit. When you see the Lord working through them, it's not because they're great men, it's because they're broken men moved by a great God. The day of movie star pastor is coming to an end. All you have to do is watch a few minutes of popular Christian television, and if you can't see it, you need to be discipled. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 21 says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow. Leaving you an example. Can we agree that Jesus is our high example? It's because Jesus is our example that these next words are so poignant. I'm going to warn you, You've read them many times, but you haven't considered them as they apply to your life. Are you ready for it? Yes. Are you ready for it? Yes. Now, if I give you God's Word, are you going to love me for it or hate me for it? Love you promise? Yes. Regardless, I'm going to do it. Let's read John 5 and verse 19 together. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by Himself. He can do only what He sees His Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. How much could sinless Jesus, perfect Jesus, do by Himself? So Jesus could do nothing by himself, but how much did you do today without the slightest consideration as to whether God had told you to? No, we don't have a dependency problem. We're one nation independent of God. Listen, the church is as bad with this as everybody else. Jesus says, I can do nothing. We fill our days with things that we can do. And why do we do them? Because we can. We don't have to go seek God. We don't, we don't have to have supernatural power to do it. We just can, right? Well, maybe, maybe this was just a one-off, right? How about verse 30? By myself, I can do nothing. Jesus is repeating this. He's on a theme. Jesus who never sinned. Jesus who never lied. Jesus who never made a mistake can do nothing. How many of you have planners, notebooks, task lists in your phone? How many things on that task list can you do without even checking with him? Because Jesus Christ could do nothing without direction from the Father. We haven't begun to discover what poverty of spirit is because we're capable of so very much. We are spiritual lottery winners. And that is the thing. 
We can do so many things without even checking with him that we end up bankrupt, we end up divorced, we end up indebted. No amount of money is enough because we never had our character proven in a way that taught us dependency upon the Lord. Well, this was just Jesus. I mean, Jesus had those kind of problems, but not us. Let's go to John 15 and verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus can do nothing apart from the Father and you can do nothing. Say it with me. You can do nothing apart from Jesus. That is so tough, isn't it? How many things are you attempting every day, day in and day out? How many plans are you making? The best mission trips we ever had, we rolled in on Maypops, completely broke. We were not the great American evangelist coming to save the day. We actually desperately needed help from our brothers where we were going or we weren't going to make it home. There is something about dependency upon the Lord that moves his heart. Amen. Discipleship, precisely discipleship, teaches you that others can see things in you you can't see in yourself. If you only heed the correction that you agree with, you are a fool. It is there to form your character. It is there to shape you so that the more you are entrusted with, the more dependent you are on the Lord. I'm learning this. I was on my way to Illinois, and I love Leonard Ravenhill. I, I, I think highly of him, and he's going to be with our king. And I was interested in a book his son wrote called Surviving the Anointing. Many of these facts and statistics have come from that book. And in listening to David Ravenhill, Leonard's son, I was just amazed at the extent to which the man was teaching. There is nothing that you are capable of outside of him. And the more that you do on your own, the more it tricks you into believing that everything is okay. I'd like to give you an example. Could we go to Judges 16 and verse 5? Say there when you're there. Judges 16 and verse 5. All right, left side of the room. Where y'all at? You there, Randy? Randy is dynamite in a small package. She's got to be to handle big old boy over there. I wouldn't want to fight with either one of them, but if I had to choose, it'd be Daniel. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength. How many of you, when you think of Samson, think of a man who's six foot five and 300 pounds and 6% body fat and ripped? Most everybody I've ever asked. Then there's no secret in his strength. There's a secret in his strength because he's a regular guy who won the spiritual lottery all of a sudden. 
He finds out he's anointed to kill Philistines. He finds out that whether he's doing good with the Lord or bad with the Lord, he can usually kill Philistines and lions too. You remember he's strolling around through the grape fields. He's not supposed to be there. But a lion comes out and he tears it apart like it was a young goat. You know why? He won the spiritual lottery. He didn't do anything for it. He didn't have any particular character for it. In fact, God chose him before he was born for it. So now the Philistines are trying to figure out the secret of his grace. You know what's wrong with Ken and Barbie ministry? If your appeal to everybody is that you're beautiful and that you speak well and that you got it all together, there's no secret to you at all. You're great. And that's the problem. If you're great, the Lord has to compete with you. Oh, we have lifted up idolatrous shrines all around us in the name of mega ministries. One of the reasons that there are fewer churches today is because how does the poor 22 years, 25 years, 30 years into the ministry, guy who has given his life to 30 people, compete with the 5,000-member Walmart full of plastic fruit right next door to it? I'm not upset with the mega churches. I'm upset with the people who put up with it. The biblical model is discipleship. How do you disciple 3,000 people? There are 120 believers in the upper room before there were 3,000 members of a church. And 12 of those were the founding apostles. Oh, man, we got to get back to sound biblical principles. In Judges 16, 5, showing you the secret of his great strength and how he can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. Verse 6, So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up. See, it was a complete mystery. You know what else was a mystery? Samson was so used to being able to do it under the anointing of God no matter what his condition that by the time you reach verse 20, he's unaware that the Lord has left him. How do so many people fall out of the faith? How do so many of the mightiest men and women you can imagine end up playing the fool like Solomon? Because gradually they drift from their dependency upon the Lord and they don't even realize when he's not with them anymore. After all, they've been doing it on their own for a long time Anyway, discipleship is meant to cure that. We are, if, you, if you are dating this ministry, we love you. Check us out. Come to our houses. It's not a problem. You can come to my house 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My front door is never locked. If somebody's making their way to my children's room, you'll get shot. But if you're coming to steal a TV, you can have it. If you're coming to come hang out with us, We're there for you. A hundred percent of the time, every night, we are open. If you are dating this ministry, we want you to understand something. We are here to disciple men and women. We are here to disciple them in the dependency on the power of the Spirit. We are here to raise up men and women that are not in the 90% that are going to bow the knee to Baal in their lives. They're in the 10% who will retire in the kingdom of God. That's what we're here for. I get you got to check us out. Make sure we're not a cult. Make sure there's not a problem. 
Don't fall into the trap of coming and being entertained by us and thinking you've done something. To make it in the kingdom, you need discipleship. You cannot get that bouncing from church to church. You can't get that bouncing from pastor to pastor in any one church. Discipleship is about you being accountable to the Word of God and the men who are displaying it. And in the best case scenario, living with Jesus seven days a week, 24 hours a day, it took him three and a half years to disciple those men. I'm sure you can do it in 18 months. We have such an instant gratification society. No wonder our pastors fall away like a man eating grapes. You know what? These pastors haven't had affairs. These pastors pray with their wives. These pastors are not discouraged. These pastors are completely dependent upon the Lord for our next meal, though. Completely dependent upon the Lord. This next few weeks, the Sutherlands and the Stevens move into the same house. P. Rose are across the street. We are all in and all means all to us. We're going to put on those clothes of righteousness and we're going to strut down the street unafraid of devils. We step on their kind. People ask why are there so many, mission, so many healings on the missions trips y'all go on. I said because we're on them. That's why. We're God's ambassadors. And when you have nothing to say of your own, then you speak the words he gives you and his word does not return void. You know what you'll never catch us doing? Selling anything. We do not pimp out the church. We don't even pass a plate in front of you. In fact, on the toughest days in our lives, when our loved ones die, when it's our anniversaries, when it's something special, you know what we do? We open our homes and spend more time discipling you because that is why we are on this planet. Not commending ourselves to you, I'm telling you that there is a way to win, and I want to win. Do you want to win? Do you want to win? Then we need to know about a few laws that are in the kingdom. Can I tell you that Exodus 20 doesn't contain the only laws in the Bible? Now, if you take a man from England, and you put him in the United States, and he drives on the left side of the road, what's going to happen to him? He's going to die or get a ticket, right? So when the policeman pulls him over, he goes, hey, hey, but I'm from England, right? Happened to be 4th of July on the day he gets the ticket. Is the policeman going to be impressed with the fact that he's from England? And if you and I go to England and we say we're Americans, so we're driving on the right side of the road, are they going to be impressed with that? You are walking around on earth, but you are in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has laws. It's a little bit like having a walking embassy. We are standing in the United States, but we are of the soil of heaven. And because we're of the soil of heaven, we obey the laws of heaven, and they supersede man's. I want to teach you a law that you cannot forget. Go to the fifth chapter of Matthew. This is part way to winning. Do I still have your attention? Jennifer, did you have anything to say today? Is there anything you wanted to share? 
I love my girl. 23 years you've been putting up with me. You know, when you really fall in love with Jesus, he will give you the desires of your heart. But you're going to have to depend on him to know how to steward those very desires. He gave me Jennifer. I wanted Jennifer with all of my heart, and I did not have the first clue how to be a halfway decent husband. You never met a more petulant punk than the man that she married. But the thing is, is when you recognize your broken state, when you allow discipleship in your life and you depend on the Lord to help you, he will remake you every day. And the more he remakes you, the more you realize you need him. You never get it mastered and go, well, now I know what I'm doing. I assure you, you do not. Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we are considering this word, blessed, this is Makeros, it's Strong's 3107, and I don't have time tonight to teach on all the things that it means. Let me summarize it in this way. Some have said happy, some have said blessed. It literally means well-oriented, well-situated. You're in a good spot, ready in a good way, if this is your situation. Poor in spirit. The word poor there is tokos. It's 44. 34, it literally means abject poverty. Not, not just a little poor, I'm talking India poor. How many of you have been to India with me? I've been nine times. I know what poverty is in India. I've been to East Africa. I've been a bunch of places that are poor. But India always takes the cake in this regard. How many of you get excited that you are poor? Not very many. In fact, if we won the lottery, it'd fix our problems, right? Wrong. We see it over and over and over. You're more than twice as likely to file bankruptcy if you win the lottery than the general populace alone. Is that incredible? So Jesus Christ gives us a law in his very first sermon. Well-oriented, happy, blessed are you when you are poor in abject poverty, spiritually speaking. So well, what on earth does that have to do with our topic? Such an interesting thing. When you're talking abject poverty, I'm thinking of so many people. Some of you are with me on a mountainside in India. When there's a woman laying there dying, she can no longer get up. She can no longer clothe herself. She has one lungi stretched from her armpits to her knees, and it's her only thing that she has in this world. She can't feed herself. She can't do anything. When she sticks out her hands, if you don't feed her, she doesn't eat. Tokos, abject poverty. Blessed are you. Well-oriented are you when you are a beggar spiritually. Why? Well, because a beggar doesn't live on his own resources. A beggar has to live on what he is handed from above. And that's the only thing he'll have. It's the only thing that will sustain him. And our Heavenly Father has got everything that we could possibly need. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs are the resources or the kingdom of heaven. When you are broken in your inner being, when you have nothing of your own, when you are more than down, you're all the way out. When you're the beggar in Indian traffic that if he doesn't eat, he's going to die and he's reaching up to you. Living off of your resources, when that is your situation, the Bible says you're well-oriented. The resources of heaven will be yours. See, it's not enough to be discipled. Sometimes when you get discipled, one of the things that you get tricked into is all that you know. How much did Solomon know? Real discipleship increases your dependency upon the Lord at every step. At one time, I thought when I began to pastor the pastors of the one association, when that was happening, you know, how do I do this? They're, they're like all grown. They're doing great. I, I mean, they're like, they're peers and they are. What do I have to offer them now? As their spiritual responsibilities grew, so did their depth of poverty. They asked for help and needed it more now than they ever did before. Oh, church, the closer you get to Him, the more dependent you must be upon Him. The further that you grow, the more you need Him in everything that you do. Why do nine out of ten pastors fall out before retirement age? They move to positions of comfort and need Him less every day. They're so capable. So why are you telling me this? I'm not a pastor. I want you to win. Do you want to win? Oh, man, dependency upon the Lord is the way that we win. A beggar has to derive his life from heaven's resources. If you could get nothing, if you could do nothing. By the way, who said I can do nothing by myself? Jesus was a beggar spiritually. Oh, it's not how you see him, is it? Jesus could do nothing without his father. He said, you can do nothing. You're a beggar and you don't know it. No, not me. I'm a son of the Most High. More than Jesus. More than Jesus. You don't need Jesus. You don't need him like he needed his father. Oh, come on, saints. Surely we're not that obtuse. Do you have more hindrances in your life or less than Jesus did? More. You know what you have then? A greater need for heaven's resources, not lesser. Oh, man, maybe this is why the poor are rich in faith. Turn with me to Luke 11. One of the things that David Ravenhill said as he heard his father preach thousands of messages... And he used to hear him say this, and he had researched it his whole life to find out whether it was true. And as far as David could tell, Leonard wasn't lying. Well, I spent the day researching it as well. And in the New American Standard, in the New King James, in the King James, in the Amplified, in the Living, in the Message, in the NIV 1984, the NIV 2011, do you know what we find? We find that there is only one time in all of the Bible that these words appear. It's in Luke 11.1. 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he had finished, what was he doing? When he had finished, one, then one of his disciples said to him, here are the one-time phrase. 
Lord, teach us. He raised the dead and they didn't say, teach us to do that. He multiplied the food and they didn't say, teach us to do that. He walked upon the water and they didn't say, teach us to do that. But when they saw the man pray, they said, oh, you have to teach us to do that. It's the only time in the English Bible that phrase ever appears. Lord, teach us. And what did they want to know? How do I pray like that? Now, if we do this, and I've done this in more than a few churches, they say, hey, hey, who, who knows what prayer is? You know, you got to, it's when you talk to the Lord, you know. Lord. Yes, it is when you talk to the Lord. But have you ever seen somebody communicate in a way you say, oh, I teach us that. I don't think that's what impressed them. I think that when Jesus prayed, he was so spiritually poor that he had to grab hold of the resources of heaven to do anything. And they recognized that when this man prayed, he had hold of the throne of God. When this man prayed, it was like a poor man that had a rich man's pocket in his hand. When Jesus prayed, he had access to the very heavens because he had nothing of his own to compete with what he needed in the heavens. They said, you have to teach us to pray. And he says, pray like this, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. See, you probably don't have to go get bread every day, do you? I'm still eating leftovers from yesterday. I don't have to go get bread every day. But when you're poor, you eat what you have on hand when you have it because it might not be there tomorrow. You may never get it again. You fill your belly the minute you can get it. Jesus prayed with urgency. Jesus prayed with pain. And what is it like saying, Lord, I have great need of you. How many of you want to know that the Father in heaven wants you to know of your need for Him? Prayer is not negotiating with God. It's admitting your utter dependency upon Him. The one thing that Jesus' disciples said, Lord, teach us, is how to be dependent upon heaven like that. Oh, man. Jesus goes on to share this beautiful parable and uh, he he says it like this in verse 5 suppose one of you has a friend and he goes to him at midnight friends ministry is always at midnight if you have a more glamorous view of it come hang out with us for a while it's never convenient if it was convenient you'd do it out of your own resources when it's inconvenient you have to use somebody else's it's always midnight friend lend me three loaves of bread Because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. Now, if you're the guy being woken up, you you should have planned better. Who takes a journey and gets somewhere at midnight? You know, I don't know what happened. Maybe he planned for donkey speed and the dude rented a camel. I got no idea 
why he got there a half a day too early. But I know in the ancient world, it is a gross shame upon the family when you have nothing to set before them. So he's in great need and there's not a thing he can do about it. Walmart's not open. It's all closed and he's got nothing, but he does have something. He's got a very rich friend. Do you think it's a mistake Jesus is talking about this when they said, teach us to pray? You have nothing and he has everything. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Prayer then is laying hold of the resources of heaven. You have nothing and your rich father has everything. Any day that you go without being in contact with him is a day that you are boasting, I am not poor and I have no need of you. What church in the book of Revelation said something like that? Laodicea. Oh, man. See, the more we have, the more we think we don't need him. He said, oh, I would counsel you to buy salve for your eyes that you might see your true condition. How do we win? And I want to win. You get discipled. You remain completely dependent upon the Lord. And whenever you think you're as dependent as you can be, you look for further to go. How many of you have been in that canyon, in Colca Canyon in Peru? Yeah. Daniel, am I talking about some dependency? You're negotiating with your body for more oxygen. It is incredible. I never found anything that hurt quite like that. Of course, we did 28 miles in seven days near vertical ascents, and I am fat. When you get to the end of what you are, you find the beginning of who he is. That is God's character. Dependency upon the Lord is everything. Now, I can't talk to you about midnight ministry to midnight. I want to. I'm trying with all my heart to catch every, every heart in this room. But let's see if we can take the hair off the dog right here. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. The first chapter. Brothers, this is 126. Are you in 126? Yes. I want to win. Do you want to win? Yes. In Corinthians 126, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. What did God choose? The weak, the shameful. Hey, let's, uh, let's just play this out for a minute. We're going to play um, football, the American style. You're going to pick two team captains, right? So I take Alex Adarmes and Cody as our team captains, right? The two shortest men in the room. 
Now, who do they pick? Who, who is Cody's first pick? Cody, do you pick the fattest, slowest guy, me, in the room? Or do you pick an extraordinary athlete like, I don't know, Nolan? Who do you pick, Cody? Do you pick that which looks like it could never succeed or that which looks like it would give you the best chance at success? We've all been in these situations, hadn't we? The two team captains begin by picking the strongest first all the way down to the weakest, and there's usually some poor kid like me that nobody wants to pick. Right? Am I right or wrong? That's not how Jesus Christ picked. Because if you win with a team of all-stars, do you know who gets the credit? The all-stars. He wants to win with the bad news bears. He wants to lose with the worst team there is. For a lot of years, it was the New Orleans Saints, but that's changed. He wants to take those that cannot succeed, and they know it. And he will cause them to succeed. And then who gets the glory? The coach that turned it around. Isn't that incredible? Now, he said not many of you were wise, were influential. Do you know what that means? Some of you were. Let's think of somebody who was wise and influential that he called. Moses, eloquent, trained in all the ways of Egypt. A powerful in speech indeed is what uh, Stephen said about him. At 40 years old, he goes out and he knows that he can do it. And he kills an Egyptian. Sorry, Ibrahim. And he buries him in the sand. He was so full of what he can do that he did. Now, it's confusing because God has called him to deliver, but he didn't call him to deliver in that way or at that time. But he did it because he could. That's not poverty. So God puts him 40 years with the sheep, 40 years on the backside of a desert. He's with the sheep so long that the one who was powerful in speech and deed, now standing before God, is like the sheep. I don't speak well. Stammering, stuttering. Please, Lord, send somebody else. He is now in a place of poverty that the Lord can use. And so he did the greatest miracles that we've ever seen and will not see again until the book of Revelation. That's incredible. What is the danger with picking strong people, people who are not dependent? Let's keep reading this passage. I finished verse 27. Let's pick up in 28. He chose the lowly things to, of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom of God. He said that nobody could boast before him do you mean that the god of all glory is concerned with who gets the glory see if you're not dependent upon him and you succeed you compete with him for all of the glory but if you're totally dependent upon him then all the glory is his oh man do we have a bunch of glory hounds in this country God can't let them succeed because if they do, they will have built a kingdom based on carnality. I have a rich friend. He has everything that I need. I happen to have nothing of my own. 
I cannot boast. I want to go with you to Hebrews 11.32, and we're going to begin to come to a close, but don't get excited. I can come to a close for about an hour. Have I wasted your time? No. Are you bored? No. I want to win. Do you want to win? Yes. I'm going to win, and so can you. It's up to us. We go through the proper way. We get discipled. We're launched by local churches. And when we're launched, we do it in teams of ministry so that we are always dependent upon the Lord. I need my brothers and my brothers need me. We have the heart that says, I will die for your vision and I know that you will die for mine. This protects us. There are no superstars in this place. So the Lord can trust us with miracles. He can trust us with the things of the kingdom. As Brother Baj has said, we are ihad. We are one. We are thoroughly immersed in each other's lives. We spend our lives with each other. When we're sad, it's because we haven't seen each other enough. None of us are independent of the others. That is what community looks like. That is what church is supposed to look like. This other monstrosity of a thing. It is fake. It is false. And they win in this world and lose in the world to come. In Hebrews 11. Man, where could I start? 31 is talking about a prostitute. Is that noble? Well, she goes down a hero. How about 32? What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon. Where was Gideon when they found him? Hiding. Barak. Barak wouldn't go. If a woman didn't go with him. Barak is the Arnold Schwarzenegger of his day. The Norman Schwarzkopf, the Oliver North. Barak is the man of power. He's got the tanks. He's got the whole deal. And he won't go. You know why he won't go? He knew of his great dependency upon that prophetess. She laid her hands on the resources of heaven. Move on to Samson. Samson's nothing, nothing without that covenant with the Lord. How do we know? As soon as his hair was cut and the Spirit of the Lord left him, any man could subdue him. Samson was not some kind of mastodon. Samson was, in fact, an ordinary guy. He might even had a beer gut. But when the Holy Ghost came upon him, he could do things nobody had ever done before. Jephthah, the son of a whore. David. Overlooked by all of his brothers. Is there a man up here that is not weak? And yet, it says, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weaknesses were turned to strength. See, we serve a God who drafts the worst of the worst, not the best of the best, so that He can take your weakness and display His strength through you. Why are they falling away like a man eats grapes? They're no longer weak. They're the great man now. They're the man up there with all of the answers. What makes them so great? All of the people that come to hear them pontificate. 
None of them disciples. None of them can stand up and do what they do. In fact, this one doesn't want to do what he does anymore. He just uh, doesn't know any other way to make money and live like that. That's what the statistics say. The church of the living God is supposed to contend with the powers of hell. The way you contend with the powers of hell is you are properly trained as a disciple. Having been properly trained as a disciple, and by the way, there was no seminary in the first century. Having been properly trained as a disciple... You learn a lifetime of ever-increasing dependency upon the Lord, an ever-narrowing way, a total lifestyle of need of heaven's resources. And in that great need, you are well-situated because the heavens will give you victory. I have five slides for you. We developed these for our churches. I learned this from teaching pastors, and I'm going to give it to you now. They had to wait 10, 15 years because I didn't know what needed to be taught. Now, going further, I've become more dependent upon the Lord. They've become more dependent upon the Lord, and we recognize something. If we can teach you to share your lives now, if we can teach you what it is to live communally now, if we can teach you what it is to be discipled now, it will be easier for you later. So we're all about it. Slide number one. These are irreducible minimums that we teach every one association church. I want and I'm asking for encouragement, correction, rebuking, and training in righteousness according to the Word of God from my friends and peers. This will equip me for every good work. I want to win, saints. I want to win. Do you want to win? The Word of God equips and trains and corrects and rebukes. And the Word of God comes through your peer group most often. If people cease to be your friends because they bring correction, forgive me for my crassness, but you suck as a friend. You need to learn to thank the person that corrects you, to hug them, to kiss their forehead. It is a kindness. When somebody loves me enough to come and tell me whether they're right or wrong makes no difference, and I might not have the perspective yet to know whether they're right or wrong. If you hear something twice in a row, you're a fool not to consider it. 2 Timothy 3.16 teaches this principle. You want to be equipped for every good work? This needs to be the kind of statement that you commit yourself to. I taught it in Romania and their church is turned around. We taught it in Chicago and their church is greatly benefited by it. I'm going to teach it everywhere I go, but I'm not going to do that out there and not do it in here. In fact, what we do in here is what we take out there. You have to be disciples. Slide two, irreducible minimums. The sun will not set upon unbiblical behavior. This sets our time frame regardless of feeling or situation. I will take biblical action upon notice. This is the irreducible minimum. When something has been brought to your attention, you have until the sun goes down to fix it. I I just need to process, you know. No, you need to do what the Bible says to do. Well, I was just waiting for the right time. No, the right time frame has already been set by God Himself. Before the sun goes down, you get it right. Amen. 
period, bar none. Matthew and I live like this. Wade and I live like this. Our wives live like this. Our elders live like this. We have full contact Christianity. And we stand together. None of us are going to fall. We're going to make it to the retirement age because I want to win. The third irreducible minimum. I have proven to my brothers and my brothers have proven to me that we have each other's best interest in mind and we will place our brother's needs above our own. I will sacrifice my thoughts, emotions, and opinions to implement the Word's instruction for our good. So I don't know if my brother has my best interest. Then he's not your brother or you're not his. Can I just go ahead and clue you in? Not everybody who says they're your friend on Facebook is. There's an older saint that is losing his way, making fewer and fewer meetings here today. And there's some little girl half naked on Facebook that's friend requested him, and it's on his Facebook page right now. And they're talking. He's talking to the devil, and he doesn't know it. And I just got to tell you something. She probably doesn't look like the little Barbie doll that's on that picture. You should have people in your life that when they say that's got to go, you say, yes, sir. You get rid of it, and then you wonder why. Then you investigate why. You obey, and then you do it. You know why? Because your brother would never tell you something if it were not for your best interest. And when you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. That's why they call it deception. I grew up with a drunk. He never admitted to being drunk until the next day. You need your brothers. Philippians 2, 1 through 4 teaches this. 19 through 22 further teaches it. Let's go to our next irreducible minimum. A promise made to the group is a vow, a pledge before my God, and therefore it is not optional and cannot be renegotiated or annulled. My word is my bond. It can be trusted. It is the same as if it were in writing, Numbers 30 and verse 2. When you give your word, you die before you break it. And you do not give your word lightly because it means that much to you. These are irreducible minimums for discipleship. You tell me you're going to be at a meeting... You miss the next three and say, well, what had happened was you're no disciple. You're no disciple. You're just a coward posing as a disciple. You don't have to be that way. Recognize your poverty. He'll give you the strength to make the meeting. We have to be honest. We live in a day where everybody says you've already arrived. If we had already arrived, we'd be out doing Moses, but I don't see a lot of Moseses in here. How about our next one? This is the fifth irreducible minimum. It is the most important. Righteousness is all that matters. Therefore, when training in righteousness is needed, it is good, spiritual, and restorative. I have surrendered my life, responsibilities, and ambitions to the Lord and to this group. When it is deemed necessary to step down from an activity or a position for a specified time period... I will accept my training in righteousness for restoration. This chapter of Ezekiel on the screen, it outlines priests who could no longer serve 
in God's presence. They could serve at the temple, but they could not minister to the Lord anymore. And they couldn't because their sin was so great before the Lord for so long that God had had enough. We never want that situation in the life of a believer. So when your church intervenes and says, please, with God as our witness, do not do this. You should see that as restoration. I want to win. I want to win bad enough to fight for it. I want to win bad enough to contend with the powers of hell for it. I want to win bad enough to train for it. I want to win bad enough to fight with you for it. I want to win bad enough that I'm like a beggar for it. And I can put my hands on the resources of heaven. He's called me to a task that is bigger than me. He has called Pastor Sutherland to a task bigger than Pastor Sutherland. He's called Matthew to the impossible. We are beggars. And yet we show up and hand out heavenly treasure on a regular basis. And you can too. Do you want to win? I want to win. And it is up to us. In these last few messages, you have had a smorgasbord, a plethora, and any other beautiful word that I can think of to describe the bounty, the abundant feast of the Lord's table. Pastor Hutchinson brought you a message called All Means All. Pastor Mays brought you a message called Jumping Ship about putting on both garments, the ones of salvation and also the ones of righteousness and the necessity of it. These were messages that came right out of their lives. I've now brought you a message that flows right out of the warrior's heart that beats inside of me. We are giving you our very best. Are you giving Jesus your best? Lip service is so much easier. We have the ability to pray here and actually lay our hands upon the resources of heaven. But you don't fill a cup that's already full. A heart has to be circumcised before it can be made new. Your ears have to be circumcised before you hear. You have to to empty yourself of what you already think. You have to empty your heart of what you already just know is right about you and ask the Lord. This is why the psalmist says so many times, search me and see if there's any unclean way in me. We're going to begin to worship. I'd hoped to take communion tonight and I made a terrible mistake. I didn't have it ready. A lot like that guy had to go to his rich friend because he didn't have the bread ready. The thing is, is this church does not depend on Pastor Sutherland's proficiency. It doesn't depend upon Matthew's anointed worship. It doesn't depend upon any administration on any of our part. All those things are good, but it absolutely depends upon us being able to lay our hands on the resources of heaven. And I intend to do it. I want to. If you want to win, stand to your feet.